to me, it was the right fit, you know, against the New York Giants. Like, this is, this is the New York Giants. If you don't like it, then you're welcome to leave. But that's the way that we do things around here. We play in New Jersey, man, so there's going to be some chippiness, there's going to be some griminess, but we're leaving it within the line, and I'll take a team like that. Once a giant, always a giant. For me, it's only a giant. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of All In with Art Stapleton, a New York Giants podcast brought to you by the USA Today Network. I am Art Stapleton, your host, and we've reached the final week and a half of February. The Super Bowl is in the rear view. Now we're staring straight at the scouting combine with the draft happening late April. It's coming fast. I will be out in Indianapolis next week and we'll be taking the show on the road to bring you everything you need to know regarding the giants, the draft. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun planning on doing multiple shows out in Indy, uh, kicking around some ideas. So we should have some good guests and try to give you set the scene, if you will, out there in Indy. So this week we're going to set, set the stage for the combine and on today's show, Connor Orr, good friend of mine, staff writer for Sports Illustrated and the MMQB. He covers the NFL, certainly has a history with the Giants, was on the beat with me uh, for several years, and we had a lot of good times together. Didn't necessarily cover great teams, but I'm glad to welcome in Connor this week on the show. So, without further ado, let's go to the interview with Connor. All right, now it's time to bring in this week's guest. And as I said in the open, this guy's a good friend of mine. I don't get to see him as often because now he's big time at uh, Sports Illustrated and the MMQB. It's Connor Orr. Giants fans should remember Connor from his days on the beat. Uh, We took many a drive. I think one time we rented a, a Challenger and... Drove to to Washington for the Giants and the now Commanders. Uh, But Connor, good friend. A lot of respect for the work he does. So uh, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. And yeah, the Challenger is still, I'm still paying that off from Enterprise. It would have been worth it, you know? (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. Dodging those speed traps on 95. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I laughed with you off the air and I said, you know, one of the things I wanted to talk about uh, and you, you and I did have some t- some uh, years at the combine together. Uh, you had gone a couple years on the beat before I I went to my first combine. It was just never part of our our beat at NorthJersey.com. But obviously, I've been there. Uh, I think it's like five or six straight years now. Uh, you have a love hate relationship with the combine, and you've covered the combine in several different aspects. Your days at NFL.com but also when you were a beat writer and now in your, your situation uh, in really covering the entire league, tell me a little bit about what you like about the combine and then we can get into what you don't like about the combine. Well, I think at this point, right. I mean, the what I like about the combine is it's become sort of our trade show, right? It's like, it's the place where we go to meet fellow members of the press to, uh, to meet, GMs and coaches and agents in a, in, a, in a kind of a disarmed environment, and that's great. It's all centralized, and um, 
there are opportunities to be with these guys away from their public relations uh, counterparts who often, you know, try to stand in the way of, of a good conversation. So that's what I love about the Combine. You know, I think that it's it's a great event for reporters. I think it's a great event for smart GMs and personnel people who are trying to get their name out there. Um and obviously agents who want to drive their clients' prices up. And so I think all those things are, are good uh, about the Combine. Um, and, uh, and, of course, the stake, uh, it, you know, uh, St. Elmo's is, is one of the best uh, steakhouses in the country. And then you have Napoli's, which not a lot of people talk about, but it's probably the best pizza uh, in, in the Midwest, I would say. Ah, I, you know what? I've never been to Napoli's, so i got to figure that out. Uh, although if you don't book the... If you don't book those reservations well in advance, uh, you're eating at either four o'clock or nine thirty, ten o'clock at night at any of the hot spots. So you, you know that. Yeah, I think. Uh, well, my old colleague Dan Hansis at NFL Network yep. he makes our St. Elmo's reservations in early December. I get a text from him. <laughs> he says, "What days do you go? The day that the combine schedule comes out." And he says, "When are you coming?" What night can we go? And so he's had that. He's had our Elmo's reservation on lockdown now for geez, uh, like going on three months now. I gotta, I gotta mention it here. I mean, obviously, uh, your time with those guys after you kind of left our beat, um, you know, and I got a chance to hang with you guys. I think it was the San Francisco Super Bowl uh, when we all kind of got, you know, we were all in that lobby, and and I don't know if it was a Sheridan or the Hilton, whatever the media hotel was. Uh, were some of the best times I've had, and I covered, I think, nine Super Bowls in a row, and that was one that I still remember, and all those guys uh, from Hansis uh, to Sessler, um, and obviously you, and then obviously Chris Wessling, um, you know, I'd be remiss to not mention Wes with with the Bengals being in the Super Bowl and and everything else and all the cover you did so you're bringing back good times obviously it kind of tugs at the heart a little bit but I do remember those times with with all you guys so uh, a lot of good memories and you know it's always good to talk about about that stuff Um, so obviously for the combine it's the the good stuff is for the reporter angle and and the teams but you had an interesting story, the idea of, you know, when, when the talk was about boycotting and the idea that players shouldn't go because it's a bubble and um, really how useful is the combine, essentially. Uh, take me through that a little bit and what are your thoughts on, I mean, have we kind of outgrown the combine for its uh, scouting purposes, I guess, for, for a lack of a better term? Yeah, I mean, well, my my take on this is that most of this is a made-for-television event, right? And I think it's one that doesn't necessarily benefit uh, the players all that much. I mean, you're basically fodder to be dissected, um, you know, on NFL Network. And that's fine. Um, you know, if you run a great 40 time or if you have a great catch or something like that, you know, maybe an owner's watching and then he decides that, oh, you know, we'll slap this guy on the draft board. But if you're at the combine, chances are you're going to be drafted. Um, it, it, unless you're like a special specialist, maybe some of the kickers aren't going to get drafted or something like that. But chances are you're going to get taken. And I just feel like you're putting yourself and your body through a lot of stress for not a lot of gain. Like you know, you've you've heard this a million times, Art. Like how many times has every GM come out and said that we watch the tape, we go off what we see on the tape. Right. Combine is is just for medical, and so. You know, these guys will go out and they'll get those centralized medical testing done. But then for weeks leading up to that, 
have been training very specifically for like uh, short yardage shuttle, um, 40 yard dash, uh, you know, all these things that when you put your body in a situation like that, like I've talked to trainers about this, it puts your body under a lot of stress and you're also nervous. You're not sleeping. And so the chances of like a soft tissue injury go up exponentially. Like we had, what was it a couple of years ago? Billy Price tore his pectoral muscle at the combine. I yeah. Doing the bench press. Much. Yeah. Um, and then we had, um, I think it was Patrick queen and, um, there was two linebackers uh, in 2020 that had uh, hamstring injuries while they were running either the shuttle or the 40. Um, John Ross hurt himself during that record-breaking 40-yard dash um, when uh, when he did that. Didn't even get the island from Adidas uh, right. that they promised him after he was going to win the uh, uh, beat Chris Johnson's record. But uh, so you know, a lot of this is just like you know, what are you putting yourself through this for? If if GMs are saying it's the film, it's the film, it's the film, just let the film speak for itself. Or your pro day where you're already doing a lot of this stuff anyway. Yeah, you know, and it's obviously a good point. I mean, I think there are, it's almost like the combine is split into different parts that what is good, what is bad, you know, what is bad. And honestly, I don't know any good part for the prospects themselves that are going to the, going to the combine. I mean, it's good for the scouts to get together. It's good for GMs. Like we mentioned, it's great for the media because we get to see people and it's really our first chance to get involved with these prospects. But in terms of what they're gaining, they probably have more to lose than they do to gain. And I don't even mean just in, in the first week of March. I mean, you talk to these guys, isn't it, it becomes a ritual, right? We talk to these guys at the end of their rookie seasons and it's always, boy, I'm sure you can't wait to get into this off season to finally train for football again. You know, and you mentioned it, the training, these guys are training for, you know, it's like, it's almost like taking a, a cheat on a test. You know, you, you know, you're just focused on, you know, three or four problems on a math test that you know are going to be on there. And then when you pass it, you kind of go into the regular season. You're like, wait a minute. I didn't train for four months to play football. I trained four months to get the best time running between two cones. It's really a strange situation. It is. And it's like, you know, not only that, but, you know, you talk to some of the people who have gone through whatever it is, IMG, Exos. How many hours a day are they sitting in interview preparation and interview training and all that stuff? And, like, you know, uh, quarterbacks, you know, 90% of that is learning how to do the board work the way that professionals do it, which, again, I mean, there's some value in that. I don't, I, you know, I'm not discounting that. But, sure. you know, you, you could do that and you could be at Exos all summer and learning how to do board work and then just not have to fly to Indianapolis to throw for no reason. And, I was thinking about that the other day, too, where all these guys are throwing to players who aren't their wide receivers, who guys that they haven't worked with before. And granted, that's a replicable situation. Like, you, I mean, God, the Giants, how many times does that happen? You know, yeah. quarterbacks are going out there and throwing to guys that they've never seen before. And I, I understand that that happens. But in an evaluation, the biggest interview of your life, if you really want, you know, some guy from Iowa State that you've never thrown to before running a post and he runs it a different way and then you have, you know, Daniel Jeremiah on TV ripping you about for it, you know? And it's <laughs> like, uh, yeah, I, I dug out what um, what uh, Mike Mayock said about Orlando Brown uh, Jr. a couple of years ago at the Combine and just like, 
you know, ripping him for how this was going to affect his draft stock. And now Orlando Brown's going to be the highest paid offensive tackle in the NFL in like six months, you know? Yeah. And uh, what did the combine matter at all? And Orlando Brown said that too. He was like, um, you know, people don't understand. Like, I'm not going to throw up big bench press numbers. That's not how my body's built. You would have known that if you followed my career. But, you know, alas, like we get there and I throw up 15 reps. And now everyone's calling me unprepared. And it's like, no, that's just not how I block. It's not how I work. And so it, it just lends itself, I think, to a lot of misunderstanding. And it creates a narrative on these players that they spend a long time trying to combat. It'll be very interesting to me to see the prospects takes uh, because you know they're all going to be asked about were you considering boycotting and how did you feel and being in a bubble and what you know now you're not in a bubble. Uh, it'll be interesting because I, I think players feel more empowered now as prospects, at least the top half of the of the prospects. And you've had guys in the past who have come and spoke their mind a little bit, and then get shunned. I mean, they get all negative attention. Uh, I wonder if it's a little bit of a flip this year where if there are a few of the top guys who come out and make strong statements, if they do gain uh, sort of the support from not just the NFLPA, but current players to to talk about, you know, good on you for stepping up, you know, and the idea of speaking your mind a little bit. There's a balance there, I think, in today's NFL where some of these guys, I think, are going to put be put in spots uh, with all the cameras there. It'll be interesting to see how they handle it. Yeah, that's a good point. And I would say uh, name, image, and likeness, I think, has helped and yeah. uh, just sort of empower them. And I think last year was a nice sort of precursor to that where – you saw a lot of guys, like I did a story on Rashad Bateman before the draft, and he was one of the opt-outs. Like he had opted in for the season and then opted out and then opted in and then opted out again. Um, and, you know, talking to him, it was like he wasn't afraid to say to me, and I think, you know, a lot of these guys who opted out were not afraid to say, like, I was making a decision about my health. We were in the middle of a pandemic. I had no idea what was going on. And so, yeah, I'm not going to just play football because it makes you happy, you know? And so I think there's a lot of steps forward on the empowerment front there, um, and I think that that was sort of a valuable exercise, and I think we'll see that continue. At least I hope I hope we do because, you know, there needed to be, and, and you and I have talked about this, there needs to be sort of a narrative flip that there had to be for years, you know? I mean, these guys needed a leg to stand on and not just sit out there and get crushed by all these lazy questions when, when people yeah. go out there. A hundred percent. So let's get into the Giants a little bit, but I, the way I wanted to get into it first with their new regime, Joe Shane and Brian Dable, I know uh, you did a great piece on Dable, so I want to get to that uh, before we're done. Uh, but the thing that struck me, you know, I was reading on a lot of what you were what you were writing over the past month, and a lot of it was centralized on the Bengals and their run to the Super Bowl. Uh, and now, you know, there are always trends, right? Everyone wants the next Debo Samuel and every, every team now that has struggled and we can start right where we live with the Giants and the Jets. The question now, and it's going to become a theme over the next couple months, can these teams do what the Bengals did? Struggle for so long and then you catch lightning in a bottle and you get the quarterback and, and the, the star receiver and all of a sudden everything else is looked over and you just, you make that miraculous run. Um, you covered the Bengals a lot. I gotta imagine you see things that worked for them. H- how do you see that lasting long term beyond the quarterback and, 
are there any parallels that teams in the league can take from what the Bengals did? We know it's a copycat league, but I don't know how much of a blueprint this is for anyone else other than the team that actually followed it, if that makes any yeah. sense. No, it does. I think it's interesting. I think that um, the one thing – I was talking to Duke Tobin a couple of days before the Super Bowl, um, and he was saying that you know the Bengals are looking at their roster – uh, you know, the, for the last day of training camp, and they're looking around, they're saying, God, everyone's picking us to win four games. Like, we, we think we have a chance to be pretty good. And I think the difference between the Bengals and every other franchise, and here's where I think it could be replicable in some way, is that they're so pared down with their front office that there is a direct pipeline. Like, the coaches have to scout because they need to, because there's not enough scouts. You know, right. So a lot of the... A lot of the time, you know, all their scouts are cross-trained, so they're pro scouts or they're college scouts. And the college scouts and their scouts meet with the coaching staff uh, constantly um, and ownership and everybody. So everybody's on the exact same page. And one cool story that I heard about this was one of their old scouts was telling me that he was watching film and back when Marvin Lewis was coaching, but they have everything set up the same way still. And he's watching film and Marvin said, well, who are you watching? And he points to this guy and he goes, look at this guy, Marvin, he's awful. He's getting reached on every play. And like, you know, we're going to throw him off our board. And Marvin goes, no, watch this. And he like points to him and he goes, he's being, he's being reached on purpose. He's doing this to help the scheme. And we would want someone like that. So mark that down. The scouts like, you know, he's like, this, this represents the disconnect with between scouting and coaching in every front office in the country. And it's like, we can now identify players that other people just didn't have the ability to identify before, you know? And so I think that's the, uh, the advantage to this. It's like they're going to be able to see things just by virtue of their relationships their, uh, with their coaching staff and the scouting staff that other teams aren't going to be able to see. And if you're Joe Shane, I think you can do that. I mean, I'm not suggesting he fire 15 of the scouts. But I think they're going to find jobs. But, like, you know, I think it's just meeting with them, setting expectations, and developing that pipeline. And I think the other teams that have that pipeline, um, like there was an interesting graph that was out the other day that was like average wins above replacement by drafted players. And it was a lot of teams like the 49ers and the Colts. And they set up their front office similarly too, where – the coaches basically pick the players um, and the scouts are just addressed on what they're supposed to be giving the front office. And I think that's probably the interesting thing that the Bengals can teach us outside of getting Joe Burrow, which right. obviously helps a lot. <laughs> right. And then using a top, a top five pick on a wide receiver who, you know, couldn't catch a pass in August and everyone wanted to, you know, to chase him out of the league and label him as a bust already. And, you know, then we all know what, Jamar Chase ended up doing for the season. So um, it's interesting you mentioned Shane. Uh, you know, he he revealed the idea that the Giants have never, or at least in the last decade and a half, you know, dating back to Ernie Accorsi, I would imagine, have never gotten together as a scouting staff or personnel department in February and set the board together. And that's what he was going to do uh, in February, I believe they're in the process of doing that, and by the time they get to the combine, it'll it'll at least be to a certain point. And part of it was to set the board, but also it was for Shane to evaluate everyone in his department to see post draft when normal, you know, big personnel changes will happen. Can he evaluate those those you know scouts? 
based on not written reports or, you know, any videos that they might submit, but in person, see how they present the uh, prospect. Talk about that. I thought that was interesting. You know, a, a big change for Shane among the many that are anticipated uh, to kind of get the scouting staff seeing things a lot differently, but also seeing things uh, the way he wants them done. Uh, and, you know, I, I thought that was an interesting thing. So uh, it's one thing that popped into my head when you were just saying about how the Bengals were doing things with, you know, even dating back to Marvin Lewis. Yeah. And one of the th- cool things that off that point that Duke Tobin said was he's like, yeah, scouting sucks. Like it, it, you know, these guys are on the road all the time, constantly all year and they're never home. And he's like, so my job, and I think that Joe is sort of taking this uh, into factor by doing these meetings, is he's like, I, I need these guys to know they matter and that their opinion matters. Because, you know, how many times if you're a scout, do you get to the end of the circuit and you're at, you know, Hobart and you're just like, okay, I can mail this in today and I don't have to pay attention. And then you miss Ali Marpet, you know? Right. and. and and it's like one of these things where it's like if these guys know they matter, if they go to these meetings and we take what they say seriously and we implement some of the stuff that they tell us, they're not going to miss those guys because they know that it's important. And I think that that's huge for for Joe. I mean, that's it's a great step to do something like that because like all these little things, like that was such a big part of the Browns turnaround too. It's like taking feedback from people and implementing it and all of a sudden like you have a team that was hadn't won a playoff game since the cold war and all of a sudden they're you know i mean i think the browns won the super bowl next year but you know <laughs> you know and, it, and it's hard too because it's easy to say that and easy to present that that you want everyone together you want a collaborative approach i mean look i, I truly believe that at one point uh dave gettleman and joe judge wanted to work together, wanted to set up a collaboration, wanted to be able to to feed players that fit the systems that they were trying to run, both offensively, which I'm not really sure what they were trying to do offensively by the end of things, and, and defensively with Patrick Graham. But ultimately, ego steps in. You know, and when when the when things get tough and you, you kind of revert back to what you know. And I think that kind of what happened, that's what happened this past season with the Giants. And I think that's why fighting together to get a Shane Dable situation was very important for the Giants and that you need these guys to be on the same page to start and feel like they have like philosophies. And it's not going to be a Gettleman way or a Judge way or even a Shermer way, which I don't even think the Shermer way mattered with the Giants. I, I don't think his voice was heard very much. Uh, but I think that's kind of interesting when you're looking at where this team goes forward, uh, how they set it up to have these guys kind of matching together rather than, uh, you know, when, like I said, when push comes to shove, it becomes, well, this is what Joe Shane wants. Well, you know, what Joe Shane wants should matter to what Brian Dable wants and, and vice versa. Uh, that brings me to, to Dable, and uh, um, I wanted to talk and kind of plug any Giants fan who hasn't seen it. In doing my research on Dable, trying to get some different angles going into the season, I stumbled across the feature you did on Dable uh, in January of 2021, in which you reached out to Mike Loxley, the Maryland head coach. Dable and Loxley were together at Alabama for that one year, uh, and you did a great I think it was inside the mind of Brian Dable. I think that's how that was the headline. It was a great headline. 
talk a little bit about how that story came to be. Uh, maybe your relationship with Dable, how much you've gotten to know him, and what kind of fit you think he will be with with the Giants moving forward. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we uh, so every year for SI, I do our future head coaches list. One of my favorite things to do, and. I think Brian had been my number – Nathaniel Hackett was our number one this year. Um, uh, Dable was two, but Dable was number one the year before that and I think the year before that. And wow. I think, the, you know, it was – and it blew my mind because, you know, a lot of people that you talk to around the league are saying, you know, like, yeah, Josh Allen is great now, but does anyone remember – what he was like a couple of years ago. And some of that sure is like, you know, works with Jordan Palmer a lot in the off season. There's the technical stuff. But when I was able to bring Mike Loxley in, they were co-offensive coordinators at Alabama. You know, Brian Dable runs a lot of this stuff in Buffalo. He was able to kind of freeze frame a lot of these all 22 uh, plays and just walk me through kind of how he thinks. And it's like, wow, like on every single play, there is something that's thought through to the point where you know there's going to be an open wide receiver. And if there's not, um, you know, there, there's an opportunity to bail on it. You know, there's a, there's a check down. There's something to give this guy confidence where he can just keep completing throws. And it was really mind-blowing to see, you know, Stephen Diggs in 2020 was – everybody knew the ball was going there. He was their only outlet. He was their only weapon. And the ways that he was able to scheme him open um, was just super impressive. And uh, I think – you know, if I'm a Giants fan, am I a little bit worried that, you know, yeah, I don't have him up in the booth now? Uh, but, yeah, but you got Mike Kafka. I think he's going to be able to fit in just fine. Um, and, you know, I, I just think he's, you know, it reminds me a lot of um, after the Super Bowl in 2018, I went with my old boss, Peter King, down to Philly. And Frank Reich walked us through the play that won them the Super Bowl. It was like an ISO play to earth. And the way that Dable sets up his offense is very similar and that everything is individual matchup based, you know, so it's custom to the custom to the opponent, custom to the game plan. There's no my system kind of garbage. It's like, you know, here's how we're going to get guys open and create easy completions. And I think that that, if you're a Giants fan, it's got to be a dream come true because I think a lot of people have spent a lot of time hearing about my system, my system, and yeah. it hasn't worked out, you know? Yeah, it's amazing, right? Doesn't it seem just so simple? You know, get guys open, you know, score touchdowns. You know, Giants haven't been able to do that much. And I don't mean to laugh, but I mean, it's to laugh to stop the Giants fans from crying because so many simplistic things, you know, how can you not scheme Kenny Galladay open at least to get some shots in the red zone? It's like the one the one thing that you know you can count on Kenny Galladay to do is to win jump balls in the end zone, and yet you cannot get that to happen for 17 games. You know, the, the Giants re-signed tight end Chris Myrick, uh, Temple kid. He spent the last three and a half weeks of the season on the practice squad of the Bengals, but they re-signed Myrick, and everyone's like, oh, who cares? Well, he actually caught a touchdown for the Giants this year. You know, Kenny Galladay and Kadarius Tony did not. You know, so you want to wonder where they have to go offensively. That's kind of one of those things uh, where Giants fans are not going to give the benefit of the doubt until they start seeing things on the field. So that's where, like I said, I thought you did a great job with those videos in in your story. So even though it's a year ago, uh, a little over a year ago, I suggest anybody listening to go and, and search for that story. Uh, to see Connor's story because I thought it was a great job 
uh, in terms of that. And you mentioned about Dable not being in the booth. Uh, and that's something that I thought about. Um, and you're always going to get this, right? When you, you hire that offensive mind and now you make him the head coach. You know, the Giants wanted the CEO when they hired Joe Judge. They didn't want the offensive mind. And, well, they got what they wanted, uh, or at least what they didn't go for offensively. They didn't go for the offensive mind. How do you feel when you see things develop across the league now? Um, will this, you know, will the head coaching responsibilities get in the way? Uh, and will we not see the kind of coach that Brian Dable was in Buffalo? Or will we see that because he's just different than uh, maybe somebody else being put in that situation? That's a great question. Um, I think that what we're, I think we're seeing more non-traditional approaches to leadership. Um, you know, uh, someone had pointed out to me, um, they said, like, look in Arizona, for example, and if Cliff Kingsbury didn't have Vance Joseph and Jeff Rogers there, he'd be in a lot of trouble because those guys take a big part of the pie in terms of firing people up, um, getting people ready to play, um, you know, uh, talking to, you know, certain guys and, and making sure everybody's on the same page. And so I think that the coaches who are able to allow themselves to do that are finding that they're able to accentuate their strengths a little bit more. And so, you know, you look at, you know, Sean Payton had Dan Campbell in New Orleans for years. And what that allowed him to do was like hole up in the quarterback room with Drew Brees and create yeah. these great offenses while, you know, Dan Campbell's out drinking 30 gallons of black coffee and chasing everybody around the field like a maniac, you know? <laughs> and I think that that helps. It, you know, uh, we saw that there was, um, you know, when Kyle Shanahan lost Robert Solid to the Jets, he went out and, and he was really deliberate about promoting someone like D'Amico Ryans, who, again, can be what Kyle knows he's not, which is, you know, exciting, <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> engaging, and, you know, and, uh, you know, I'm not saying he's not an engaging person. I'm just saying that the smart coaches know where their personality ends and somebody else's begins. And I think that, you know, Dable seems to have put a really good staff together. I'm actually pretty blown away at, you know, if you, you know, three of these guys, two of these guys were on my head coaching list, you know, and, yeah. uh, uh, Kafka, at least according to everyone that I had talked to going into this past list and the list before that was, you know, the chiefs were ready for the enemy to get a head coaching job and, not that they were excited to let him go, but thrilled at the prospect of just being able to plug in Kafka and let him go and run this offense. And so I think that there's a lot to like about all this. Um, and, uh, you know, Dable's put himself in a good situation where he can feel it out. You know, if he, if he wants to try to be the CEO for a little bit, he can probably do that. But he's also got, like, Martindale there who's going to be able to help him out. Like, he's got a lot of really tenured guys who can handle their rooms if he needs them to. Yeah, and he's got – I mean, obviously he brings Bobby Johnson a huge piece, the the component at offensive line, and he's somebody who he's worked with extensively, you know, previously. So that's one of those things where he probably lets Bobby go and, and just says, go ahead, go, you know, you you guys go run it. Uh, and uh, Sperano Jr. too is his assistant, so obviously he has an extensive history with Sperano. So um, that, that was an interesting – spot but listen we can talk for hours and hours and hours but and hopefully we get a chance to to reconnect out in indy next week but i do appreciate you joining me today obviously i would say to everyone who's listening please head over to to si to mmqb check out all connor's stuff just 
you know, one of the best out there. So I have a lot of respect for the work you do. And my friend, I appreciate all your time coming on. This has been wonderful to catch back up and, uh, I'm sure we'll be getting back together at some point soon. Sounds good, man. Yeah. Appreciate you having me. Thanks a lot, Connor. So that'll that do it for this week's all in. Uh, appreciate you guys listening. Make sure to continue to download, subscribe, And as I said in the open, we will bring the show out to Indianapolis. We are going to do several episodes next week. At least that's the plan. So keep following along on NorthJersey.com and on Twitter at Art underscore Stapleton. And I'll let you know when the new episodes uh, update. So until then, we'll check you out in Indy. Indy.